Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. This week, I'm excited to share a conversation I had with Solomon athlete Mike McKnight, who first came on the show back in May of 2020, shortly after he ran 100 miles without consuming a single calorie. This time around, we talk about his improbable victory at the 2023 Coconut 250, which is already being hailed as one of the craziest comebacks in ultra running history. After struggling early in the race as a result of some electrolyte imbalances and staring down a DNF, Mike fought his way back to the front after at one point trailing the race leaders by more than 30 miles, ultimately pulling out the win and setting a new course record in the process. Mike's retelling is pretty captivating, and we hit some fun tangents along the way. But before I bring Mike on, I want to take a quick minute to remind you guys that registration is now live for our 2024 Blister Summit. From February 4th through the 8th, we'll be hosting a series of summit events in our hometown of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. Expect a bunch of on-snow activities and demo opportunities from industry-leading brands, panel sessions with company founders and professional athletes, daily restorative yoga, a bevy of food and drink options, and a whole lot more. Early bird pricing is just 250 bucks, but ends June 1st, so don't miss out and start planning your trip now. For more info on what to expect, how to register, and a list of discounted accommodations, check out the link in the show notes. All right, and finally, I also want to remind you guys to leave us a rating or review after this conversation wraps up. Little things like that really help us continue to put out new episodes of the podcast each week. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Mike. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, I had a chance to interview Sarah, the winner of the Coconut 250 women's race a couple weeks ago and heard her recounting of how her uh, three days played out. And uh, she ended up leading the race for most of it. And I know that you had a very different experience um, putting together quite the comeback. And I wanted to hear that that story from you. So I thought that would be a good place to start. Take me through what happened at Cocodona um, this year. Maybe, maybe you know, we should start by by kind of teeing up your history with the race because I know, like Sarah, you've run it all three years of its existence. Yeah. So yeah, this is my third year doing it. Uh, the first year was you know 2021, and um, long story short, I had to drop at mile 150, and just because. Uh, I didn't bring enough water in that first like big section. Um, and then that first year too, they didn't have any water drops like they did this year. So it, it just made it really hard to have as much water as we needed. So I got severely dehydrated. My urine turned brown to blood. And so, yeah, I started showing signs of heat exhaustion. So at mile 150, I dropped. I went to the hospital. I had rhabdo. And uh, ended up staying in the hospital for um, a day, day and a half with an IV drip um, getting put into me to rehydrate me. So that first year was a total disaster. (laughs) Um, And then the second year I came back and like before the race even started, I knew I was going to have to come back again because they had to reroute the course like three or four days before it started because of the fire. And so that reroute took out the, the section that essentially kicked my butt that first year. And so I, like, I knew I'd have to come back because I wanted to, to conquer that section. 
Um, so yeah, so before I even started, I knew I'd come back, but then also I, I made a stupid mistake the, the morning of, uh, I, I read, I don't know if you've heard of the book, the salt fix. Um, but I, I've been following the, the, the guy that wrote that and he talks a lot about preloading salt before big activities. And so I, I did that for the first time the morning of the race and you know, you never want to try something new on race day. Right. <laughs> um, and so long story short, I did that. I didn't get enough water with, with that, uh, salt load. And so a lot of that salt ended up sitting in my gut and wasn't like properly absorbing. And so I ended up just having my severe stomach issues for the first 50 miles or so like puking, couldn't eat anything. I uh, lost a lot of energy, fell behind to like 12th or 13th place. And then after taking a nap, uh, my stomach kind of reset and then I made up a lot of ground and ended up taking second place. But you know, I was probably a good five or so hours behind stream bean, uh, Joe McConaughey who won the race that year. So between the, the, the fire, the reroute, and then just like messing my electrolytes up. Like I, I definitely decided I had to come back again this year. Why were you so kind of fixated on, on, as you say, like conquering the race? Like what about that mentality really uh, keeps you going? I, I would like to think that the majority of like ultra runners have the same mentality that, you know, if you DNF a race, you want to come back and finish that race. And you know, that's exactly why I had to come back that second year. But I mean, the big reason I DNF that first year was because of that first section and not having enough water and just not being properly prepared. And so even though I didn't get a DNF in 2022, just the fact that I wasn't able to like do it in the fashion of conquering that section that destroyed me the first year, I just, I wanted to come back and just kind of prove to myself that, that I can be smart and, and, and conquer that section. Like, are you, are you going out there to win the race or are you going out there to, to win the race and like beat other competitors? Or are you going out there to like really prove yourself something like against the course? Like, is it more an internal drive or are you, are you motivated by, by the competition? Uh, definitely both. Um, I mean, I, so I've been doing this for 10 years. Yeah. My first ultra was 2013. And I would say from 2013 to 2020, like I didn't have a competitive attitude. I was just out there trying to go against myself. And then in 2019, that was, uh, for those who aren't familiar with my history, I did the triple crown of 200s in 2019, which is the Bigfoot 200, the Tahoe 200, and the Moab 240. And at the time, they were within 60 days of each other. Um, now Tahoe's in June, so it kind of messed up the dynamic of that. But in 2019, that's like they were right next to each other. And I just went out to to better my 2017 triple crown time. And through that, ended up winning each individual race. Uh, Bigfoot, Tahoe, and Moab. And so that kind of like opens my eyes a little bit to like what my capabilities are for 200s. And so after that experience in 2019, that's when I started also to not only try to push myself to better myself, also to like compete as well. Yeah. And I'll just say that uh, we first had you on the show back in May of 2020. So we'll, uh, we'll link to that episode if you want more of a, a of Mike's background. I'm curious, like what have you kind of taken from each running of uh, Cocodona aside from just like getting the electrolyte stuff figured out? I mean, that's the biggest one. <laughs> like 
Yeah. I mean, every year I've messed up with electrolytes. Like this year, I forgot my electrolytes at the start. Like, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> I, I made so many stupid mistakes this year. I, I don't know what it is about this race. Like I, I just like brings out the stupid in me. <laughs> um, I mean, but yeah, long story short, like, uh, you know, the race starts at 5am. And so I got up at three 30, uh, a little bit disoriented, like that's pretty early to get up. And then I went to bed at like nine, but didn't sleep that well. So like, I was pretty tired when I woke up already. And so like I left and, uh, the night before I, I never use like a bladder. I usually just do a bunch of bottles, but for that first section, a requirement was to carry four liters of water. And so I had this idea to basically fill a two liter bladder up with ice and then put it in my pack. And then, you know, that first hour and a half before the aid station at mile 10 or whatever it was, um, I wanted that ice to like start melting and then add water to it and get really cold water for hopefully the next two or three hours. But anyway, on the drive to the race, I realized I left that bladder in my freezer at my Airbnb. Oh man. <laughs> and like normally I just like, I have a ton of like bladders and bottles, like in a bag, just in case one pops, but just like, essentially like I wouldn't be seeing my crew until mile 37 that day. So my crew is just like, we'll take you to the start. We'll come back to the Airbnb and we'll load up all your stuff. And so I had like no extra gear in the truck with me. So like we had no option, but to turn around and head back and, and get my bladder and Doing that, we got back in the car, put in the GPS coordinates for the race, and it said that I would be getting there four minutes before the race started. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was already just like super stressed out, super not like focused on just being ready to run this race. I got there, I had a malfunction with my watch, like within the final two minutes of getting ready to start, which added even more stress. And then, you know, essentially, like right when they said go, my watch like kind of resolved itself and I heard and hit start and like took off. So like I was already just like super frazzled and super not focused on my race at all. And so in the midst of that, I got to like mile three, I reached in my pack to pull out a salt pill and realized that I, I forgot my salt pills. So I just, <laughs> I just got so super like, it's all my fault. Like I'm the one that forgot my bladder. I'm the one that got like I wasn't prepared. And so, yeah, that's what kind of caused me to forget about my electrolytes. Have you done like sweat tests and stuff to like figure out how much salt you need like per hour? No, but I need to, I, I sweat a lot of salt yeah. for, sh for sure. That's something I always think about, like just kind of getting an objective measurement of it just makes it a lot easier. Cause I have friends that need like three times the amount of salt I need, which is like wild to me how much variance there is. Yeah. I usually like, I don't know for sure what I'm losing, but I found that the, the ratio for me is roughly like 300 milligrams every 30 to 40 minutes. And so I use a capsule, it's called ultra salt and there's 320 milligrams per pill. And so I usually just pop one of those pills every 30 to 40 minutes. So, I mean, yeah, I'm doing roughly 600 milligrams per hour and I didn't get to see my crew until hour nine or so. And so I was like severely behind on my salt by the time that I saw them. Yeah. Before we get kind of deeper into the race, you've run a ton of 200s. Have you kind of developed a, like a, a blueprint that kind of works for you without like, you know, revealing all your secrets? <laughs> well, I'm happy to reveal my secrets, but um, I did have a blueprint until this race. And now I'm like looking at rewriting my blueprint because <laughs> I, yeah. I, I feel like I... 
I unintentionally learned a lot from this race and I'm definitely looking at shifting my strategy for future, for future 200s. Can you be a little bit more specific about that? Um, I can be, but that's going to require me to start telling the the whole story of what transpired. All right, let's, <laughs> let's get into it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, so I told this story to a buddy the other day on a trail run and like, it took me an hour and a half to tell the story. So, Okay. (laughs) I don't know if you want me to stop at certain places or if you just want to cut me off at certain key points, but I can talk a lot. Yeah, I'll jump in. Okay. Um, Go for it. So, yeah. So, I I had those issues the first like hour, basically. Um, And so, for the the next 10 or so hours before I saw my crew, I started getting stomach issues because I wasn't getting any salt. I started cramping because I wasn't getting any salt. Um, thankfully though, I was smart. And the good thing about that, that climb this year is there was a lot of water crossings, which the first year that wasn't there, like there was no water. So they did a water drop this year. They had probably four or five, um, little to medium sized stream crossings from all the water they got this year. And so like every time I got to a stream, I essentially just like laid in it. I kicked my feet up on a rock, let the water run down me and I just get my filter out and just like sip on water for five minutes. Um, you know, a lot of people pass me. Some people make comments like, you know, you think you're wasting too much time doing that. <laughs> you know, in my head, I'm just like, I have no choice. Like I, I'm just trying to survive right now because I forgot all my salt. And so I did like try to like properly um, cool myself off and try to alleviate a little bit of the symptoms from the heat and not having electrolytes. But um, I got to my crew at Crown King, mile 37. I tried eating. I couldn't really eat. Um, I, I tried like slowly putting in sodium to start because if you do too much sodium too fast, that's also going to give you stomach issues. So I was trying to find this balance of getting enough in to reduce the cramping that I was having, but not too much. So I wouldn't get more stomach issues. Um, so I ended up leaving crown King pretty beat up, pretty tired, like just behind that next section, like took a long time for me. There was a climb out of crown King and I just had no juice to get up that climb. And I had to sit down multiple times to rest. I got to the next aid station, still like beat up and unmotivated. You know, the only thing that got me out of that aid station was they told me that my crew would be at the next aid station. And so I start going to the next aid, the sun's going down. I'm starting to fall pretty far behind at this point. Um, I had to call my wife multiple times to like get pep talks from her just because I was so upset that how, like, it seemed like everything was going wrong for me. Um, I had some more gear malfunctions in that section too. But um, about a couple miles before the aid station, I made the comment to my wife on the phone. I was like, okay, like I'll see you in two miles. And she's, she said, what are you talking about? And I said, you guys are at this aid station, right? And she said, no, it's not crewable. And so like, I, I, I'm not mad at that volunteer, like, you know, but like in the moment I was very just upset at the situation because I was planning on seeing my crew at that aid station. And then the next thing that happened, um, you know, this is called Camp Kippa and there's a little like quarter mile out and back that you have to do to get to that aid station. And I blew right past it. And the, the aid stations like at the top of a hill. And so the next two and a half miles, which is what I, that's how far I went past the aid station was an extra two and a half miles. And it's all downhill too. And so, you know, I got two, two and a half miles away. I called my wife and I was like, are you watching the tracker? And she said, no, I'm sleeping. And so (laughs) I asked her to check 
And I just hear her kind of go like, oh. And I said, what does oh, that man. mean? <laughs> and she said, you're, it looks like you're about two and a half miles past the aid station. And so I had to turn around and go back, um, you know, because you get DQ'd if you didn't go check into the aid station. So, you know, I did an extra five miles in that section and with the uphill, like I just walked it. So it probably took me an hour and a half extra to do that five miles. Got to Camp Kippa, like ready to quit, basically. So I got to Camp Kippa. And the other issue that I was having, so I broke my back um, in 2012 and I have hardware in my back. And I, I noticed I was experiencing like a lot of pain on my spine. And it's not uncommon for me to have like lower back pain in these races, but never like directly on my spine. And so I got there and I started like massaging my spine. And I noticed that like, it felt like something was poking out of my spine and it felt very like hard. And so I called a volunteer over, she felt it. And I could see on her face, she was a little concerned. She felt her back. She felt other people's backs. And she was like, yeah, that's like, no one else has that. Like something's weird. I mean, today I'm feeling it right now. I'm like, that's just how my back is, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) But in the moment, like, I think I was just looking for any reason to get pulled versus like quitting. And so like I made up this like arbitrary, um, or like made up story. Basically I was worried that my, my screws were like popping out or something. (laughs) And so they called them the vault, the medics, the medics were like an hour to an hour and a half out. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll just wait. Like I I was just so mentally done at that point. And so I went and took a nap. They showed up and woke me up. Um, They felt my back and essentially just told me they think it's just inflamed and bruised from the bladder that I'm not used to Mm -hmm. using. And they said, if you can deal with the pain, then you're probably okay to keep going. And I was just, I was still just done. So I was like, I was like, are you going by the next aid station? And they said, yeah. And I said, if I quit, can I just ride with you and you can take me to my crew? And they said, yeah. And they said they were going to leave in about 15 minutes. So I was like, okay, I'll go over there and think a little bit more for the next 15 minutes. We head over to the lodge and I'm sure you've heard of um, Pete Koselnick and and Jeff Gardmeyer. Yep. So they were both there and we've seen each other at races before and chatted. And like I'd say we're acquaintances, but progressing to like more of a good friendship from all the races we've done together. But when they heard that I was looking or going to quit, uh, they were having a rough go too. Like they were having puking issues and couldn't keep anything down. And so they basically just said, don't quit. Just like we're going to walk to the next aid station. So just walk with us. And so like, honestly, if they weren't there, I probably would have quit. So I, like I owe a lot to those, those two dudes. So yeah, so we walked to the next aid station, got there about 3 a.m. I told my crew I was just going to go sleep in my uh, rooftop tent until I woke up and told them not to wake me up just because, again, like I was pretty sure I was going to quit. I slept for another two hours, three hours or so. I'm not quite sure. Woke up, the sun was up, and my wife talked me into just at least trying to get to the next aid station, which was Whiskey Row, and it was eight miles, mostly downhill. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I can handle that. And you know, kind of see what happens. And so when I left at this point, everybody was telling me that I was about nine to 10 hours behind first and that they were roughly 34 to 35 miles ahead of me at that point. And like, honestly, that which was, in like, yeah, in any other race, that would be like an insurmountable lead. 
Yeah. Well, I, at the moment, I felt like it was pretty insurmountable. <laughs> right. I'm sure you did. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I've, I've never fallen that far behind before. Like, you know, the year before when I had stomach issues, I fell behind to, like, 13th place. Like, I've never been into... Oh, yeah. So, the place I was in apparently was around 70 to 73rd place at that time. And somebody that I coach, his target for the race was 90 to 100 hours. And I was told he was about a mile behind me. And so that kind of like put into perspective, like where I was at in terms of like, you know, what people's goals were and what they were shooting for, for the race. So, yeah, that was kind of like, um, demotivating for me to like find out that I was like that far back. (laughs) What were your kind of splits? Like what was your anticipated finish time? Did you have one? My goal was uh, to beat my time the previous year which was on an easier course of 65 hours so i was roughly 25 to 35 hours behind at that moment what my target was based off of the guy that i was coaching who was a mile behind me and had a 90 to 100 hour target finish um So yeah, so I was pretty far behind. <laughs> um, I <Yeah>. went to, <laughs> we went to Whiskey Row and like everything felt better. Like my stomach felt better. I was more motivated. Somebody else that I coached came out to pace me and he was like trying his hardest to like pump me up and, and help me stay focused, which is cool, you know, because I'm coaching him. But in the moment, he was essentially coaching me and helping me out. Um, but anyway, about two miles or so before Whiskey Row, I was like, okay, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling motivated. Like I'm, I'm ready to start pushing and making up a lot of ground. And so we got to whiskey row and like my crew could see like, you know, I, I, I have the same crew at almost every race. I have Ben light. I have my wife and like, they can see in my face when I'm motivated and they can see in my face when I'm not motivated. And so when I came into whiskey row, like they could see that I was back and ready to go after it. And so all of them just kept saying, you know, if you pick the pace up and if you hold a solid pace, you probably can reach the top 10. And like, I felt extremely confident for whatever reason. And I told them that my goal was still the course record and still first place. And I could like instantly see in their eyes that they, you know, thought I was being extremely hopeful. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like Ben, he has this face he makes like, like his eyes get big and like, he looks down at the ground, like he won't look you in the eye. And so he kind of did that and he was just like, you know, whatever's going to motivate you, Mike, like, you know, keep that motive, like keep that motivation up essentially. So I could tell that most people didn't think it was possible. Like I don't blame them, but for some reason or whatever, I felt confident enough to still go after that goal. And then from that point, mile 80 to 250, I essentially like PR'd, you know, every section and, and made up quite a bit of time. And I mean, I have a lot of filler stuff I can t- share in between, but yeah, that's kind of what happened up to that point of the race. Now that you're like a few weeks removed from the race, and I'm sure you've like talked about it a bunch um, to like friends and family, uh, can you identify like that like one turning point? Like what kind of, what f- like switch flip for you? I mean, honestly, it was the guy that was pacing me at the time. Um, his name is Tony Klein from Denver. And um, he, I just kept like talking about like all the stuff that was pissing me off, like all the things that were going wrong. And every single time he would just be like, okay, well, like what's something positive? And so he just like kept going back to what's positive, what's positive. And like, like just him telling me to focus on the positive, just like is essentially what shifted my mind. And um, the, 
biggest positive thing I was able to identify was that my body actually felt great aside from like the stomach pain I was having from being behind on electrolytes. But, you know, I knew I've had stomach pain before and I've always believed like, you know, I'm a low carb athlete and I've always believed that the, one of the biggest benefits is if your stomach does go south, you don't really bonk because you're still at least burning your fat storage. And so in my head, I was just like, my body feels great. Yes. Like my stomach's not ideal, but you know, at a minimum I can just push and rely on my fat storage for as long as I can. So I focused on the positive, which was like how good my body felt. And I told myself that I could run harder and faster. And um, just like focusing on running harder and faster is kind of what distracted me from all the crap that had happened for the previous 24 hours. At what point in the race did you take the lead? Um, so I ended up passing first with roughly a marathon to go. And so 224, 225 or so. That's pretty much just a, a sprint finish. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> the 250 mile race. Yeah. I mean, it's not uncommon for me to like stay behind and catch first with like, you know, a Bigfoot a few years ago, I caught first at mile 150. At Tahoe that year, I caught first at mile 175. So it's not uncommon for me to catch first roughly around that time frame, but usually I don't have like 35 miles to make up. <laughs> yeah. Is there any way to like prepare for um, like a race like that mentally outside of the race or you kind of just have to like figure it out as you're, as you're running? Like, do you do any mental training or meditation, anything like that? I don't meditate. Um I'm doing, I guess I kind of am doing more forms of it, like waking up and walking around on the grass barefoot. So like doing grounding and stuff and just kind of like breathing, I guess that's a type of meditation, but, um, and for 200s, like, I believe the, the best preparation is just experience. Like, you know, the first 200 usually pretty rough. Um, but you know, you learn quite a bit and you keep learning quite a bit. Like I, I learned quite a bit of this race. Um, I think though, like one way that I try preparing people that I coach for their first 200 is I'll schedule like two to three weekends where they do like a 15 mile run Friday night at like 10 PM. And so they'll finish between midnight and one and then go to sleep until four 30 or five and then wake up and go for like a 25 mile run. And so you know, I believe that doing that two or three times gets you somewhat mentally prepared for the hardest part of a 200, which is, you know, sleeping for a very little amount of time and then waking up and running for a long amount of time, even after like running a fair amount before going to bed. So I think that's like the biggest thing that you have to mentally prepare for. Yeah, that's a good segue into something I wanted to ask you about uh, related to how you thought about sleep during the race. Um, do you naturally kind of handle sleep deprivation pretty well, or is it something that you think you've improved over the years? Um, I think I've always handled sleep deprivation. Well, um, most of my two hundreds, I go till the second night and then take like a 30 minute dirt nap. And that's basically it. Uh, when I did the Colorado trail in 2020, um, that took me seven days and I slept a total of five hours. So it was like 45 minutes a night. <laughs> So I, I do feel like I handle sleep deprivation well, but part of the thing that I am looking at rewriting in terms of my blueprint for a 200 is sleep because that first night I slept three to four hours, never done that before. And then I was able to like run really hard for the final, 
50 hours or whatever it ended up being. And so, um, and from what I understand, Sarah slept a little bit more early on as well. And so just from her experience and my experience, like, you know, I'm, I'm highly contemplating like banking sleep that first night because I've always like had this like mental, like crux. I don't know if that's the right word where I've, I've always been afraid to sleep that first night because I didn't want to fall three hours behind first because in my head, three hours is way too far behind. But now that I've been nine to 10 hours behind, like in my head, I'm just like, yeah, like two to three hours really isn't that much time. Like, you know, I, I'm thinking at the point when I was two to three hours behind the leader um, in that race, and like, I made up that time pretty quick. And so like the biggest thing that I'm looking at rewriting is sleeping, not maybe four hours the first night, but I am looking at maybe getting like a good two to two and a half hours sleep that first night for future 200s. Gotcha. As someone that obviously thinks quite a bit about like what they put in their bodies and um, health and performance, I'm curious how you recover from efforts like this. Um, what is something that like you're doing that that maybe other people aren't necessarily thinking about? I think more and more people are starting to think about it, but like, you know, for me, I'd say the biggest thing is nutrition. And I know there's a lot of people out there that disagree with my nutritional approach. Um, I don't think you can argue though. Maybe some people can argue, but I think for the most part, you can't argue though that it is a good diet for like reducing inflammation because it's no processed foods. It's no like wheat and gluten, which has an inflammatory response. It's no food with added sugars. And so like I focus on getting like a lot of clean protein, a lot of fat, um, and a lot of like clean carbs from fruits and like raw honey. <laughs> and so like we actually talked about this on a podcast yesterday, but like most people's common reaction after a big effort like this is to like go out and celebrate. Like even people do like a low carb approach or whatever, like let's go get some pizza and beer and celebrate tonight. And like, um, I believe like my coach, Jeff Browning, he's the one that taught me this. And I really agree with it because I've had points where I haven't done this and I have had points where I have done it and I've seen a noticeable difference. But essentially, like the first 72 hours after a race, like that's the strictest I am with my diet, like me, eggs and fruit, basically. And so, and that's the time window where you're going to have the most inflammation probably after a race. And so I eat that way to reduce inflammation, which I believe helps recover a lot. And then I also do a lot of strength training right after. Like I, I finished Cocodona on Thursday. And I stayed there for two days to watch everybody that I coach finish. I got back on a Sunday and like from Sunday to the following Sunday or two following Sundays. So two weeks, like I essentially lifted weights every single day. I took a whole week off from running, but I, I lifted weights every day to like rebuild the muscle that I lost in that, in that race. And so by the time I ran again, which was a week later, I mean, muscularly and like physically, like I felt almost perfect um, about a week after. When have you kind of started doing that? Is this like more recent or have this, has this been something like that you've been practicing for years? The diet or the strength training or both? Yeah, I guess the combination between the two. I know, I know in the previous episode we had you on, um, we got into nutrition and stuff like that. But yeah, I guess uh, more so with the strength training that, that feels kind of... Uh, Slightly new, like a new addition. Yeah. Yeah. So I started low carb in 2016 
And from 2016 to 2019 is when I had the mentality of like, when I finish a race, I'm going to go cheat for two to three days. And I ballooned up like every single time, like cankles, no calf definition. Um, you know, Ben light, he jokes, like he, he shaves his legs and he, he taught me to do that too. I was embarrassingly to admit, but he always jokes that like the good thing about ballooning up like that is like, there's no definition to your muscles in your legs. So it makes it easier to shave your legs, <laughs> but, uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> always got to look at the positive, but so yeah, so from 2016 to 2019 is when I like cheated. Uh, like I, I don't like that word, but everybody understands it. But like I cheated for two to three days, ballooned up. 2019 is when I decided to switch that and be extremely strict for those first three days. And like the re- reduction in inflammation was like highly noticeable. So I've been doing that since 2019. And then the strength training is definitely more recent. Um, I would say... So in October of last year, I went after the Arizona Trail FKT and that that beat me up. I probably took a good three weeks or so off from running. But like during those three weeks is when I like upped my strength training routine. And I noticed that like I felt quite a bit better versus just going for a bunch of walks like I used to do. And so, yeah, since October of last year is kind of when I started tinkering more with strength training after big efforts. Are you doing like body weight stuff or are you lifting heavy like compound lifts? As someone that like doesn't do a ton of strength training admittedly, I'm 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 looking for uh for ways to get into it. Yeah. So, um I do it 5 to 6 days a week. I usually take Saturday off because that's my long run day. But like Monday, Wednesday, Friday is usually heavy-ish weights. Like I'm not going for like like whatever it's called like one rep maxes or whatever. Like it is slightly heavy, but it's like low enough that I do it. So I can get like 15 reps or something out of it, 15 to 20 reps. Um, so I do stuff like that Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday is body weight. And then Sunday morning is kind of like a lighter dumbbell full body slash hit style type workout. Gotcha. And a question related to diet. Do you think like people have become more open to low carb ketogenic diets in the past couple of years? I do. I, and I think that's because those of us who have been doing it have been realizing that we might've been wrong when we started. Um, cause when I started, like I spent the first two to three years, like doing essentially a strict keto slash borderline carnivore diet. Like it's not uncommon for people who start this approach to be kind of carb phobic when they start. Um, but yeah. as, it, as it's transition, like at this point I'm probably doing like, you know, I used to do 30 grams of carbs a day. And now I'm probably doing 150 to 200, which compared to like a standard diet, it's still low because like, I mean, I follow a nutritionist who promotes high carb diets and like a lot of the stuff she's saying is that, you know, you should be getting five to 600 grams of carbs a day. So it's still low. It's not keto low. It's not carnivore low, but it's still low. So I think, you know, as people are seeing that it's not a strict keto diet, it's not a strict carnivore diet. You're still getting ample fruits starchy vegetables on occasion. Like I think now that people are seeing that side of things, a lot more people are being open to it. Is that the main thing you've kind of tweaked in the past handful of years is bumping the cards up slightly while still remaining pretty low? Yeah. Yeah. And then also not like, I just say 150 to 200 just because like, I want to give people a reference point, but like, I don't track my carbs anymore. Like I used to. And so like, you know, today I I strength trained before this, this podcast. And afterwards I had a bunch of eggs and a bunch of dates. 
And like, you know, I'm sure that was 30 to 50 grams, but I'm not entirely sure. For lunch today after my run, like I'll have a big bowl of fruit with a little bit of like pure maple syrup on it, which will be another 50 or so grams. So yeah, I, I don't track it as much anymore, but yeah, definitely not tracking it and then raising the carbon take a little bit is how I've kind of shifted things. I read that during a Cocodona, you drink a ton of raw milk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> So I've noticed in all of my like past races, when my stomach goes south, that I can handle liquids fairly well. And even like calorically dense liquids, um, I like in past races, I've bought chocolate milk for races. That I'll drink in between. Um, I did bad water last year and my stomach went south there. And do you know what core power is? Yeah. 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 So the, like fr- protein drink. Yeah. Just like, kind of like a muscle milk type thing that you can get mm-hmm. at a gas station. Um, I had a friend that did bad water and she's sponsored by core power and we stopped at her house before. And she was just like, Hey, they sent me like 20 cases and I, I don't need all this. Do you want some Mike? And I didn't want it, but Ben, he was like, Oh yeah. Like I love that stuff. So he grabbed three cases and my stomach went South and bad water. And Ben's like, well, you want to try one of these core powers? And I was like, sure. So I drank it. And like, I probably pounded like to like, all three cases, to be honest, for the rest of the race, like that's where all my calories came from. And so, you know, afterwards I looked at the ingredients and I had stuff in that I don't necessarily care for like sucralose. And, but, but what that did do is teach me that even if it's freaking hot, like bad water, even if my stomach south, I can actually handle that kind of stuff. And so after bad water is when I discovered that there's a dairy farm by my house that like jumped through all the loopholes and can sell raw milk. Um, you know, people who people who don't know, like raw milk is extremely hard to come by. And so I've started buying that. And like, I drink probably half a gallon to three quarters of a gallon a day. Um, just like open the carton and drinking it after workouts and stuff. And so I know that my stomach can handle it. I grew up on a dairy farm drinking a ton of raw milk. And so the nice thing about Arizona is Sprouts grocery store has jumped through the loop and they can sell raw milk. And so when I was shopping for stuff, I was getting ready to buy some chocolate milk again. And I was like, what am I doing? Like I can get raw milk here. And so I bought a ton of raw milk and, you know, just like bad water, like even though I had a hard time stomaching solid foods, I was able to drink milk. And so I would just come into aid stations and chug a bunch of milk and then take off and eat very little between aid stations and then just kind of repeat until I got to the finish. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. So raw milk is just unpasteurized, right? Correct. Okay. And what are the kind of health benefits of that? Um, I mean, the biggest thing is, so me and my family sold the dairy, the the cows about 10 years ago, and I started drinking pasteurized milk and I started having, um, basically I had lactose intolerance and I was like, what the heck? Like, you know, I've grown up drinking milk. Why am I all of a sudden having issues? And so I stopped. I didn't think anything of it. And then I saw this dairy farm sold raw milk. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to buy half a gallon and, you know, see what the magic is, like, see if I can tolerate this. And I I was able to tolerate it. And so I started doing a bunch of research. And basically what happens is when you pasteurize milk, it alters the nutrient profile. It reduces a lot of like, it reduces zinc, it reduces some of the vitamins. But one thing that it also does is raw milk has the enzyme lactase in it, and it completely destroys lactase. And so, you know, me, I've gotten a lot of other people who are lactose intolerant on raw milk. And like, so far, I have not met one person who can't stomach. I I worded that wrong. Like, it's not like we're just trying to stomach it. Like, no, um, I gotcha. 
Like I haven't met one person who's had lactose intolerance who can't drink raw milk and not have issues. And so that's kind of the biggest compelling thing about it is you can drink it and it doesn't upset your stomach because it has lactase in it. I'm in the Bay Area right now and I know that there's a ton of farms that supply raw, raw milk to like, you know, organic co-ops and stuff. So, I might have to run out and get some. Good luck. Be prepared. I've heard it's expensive where you're at. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they, they upcharge for sure. Yeah. I, think, um, um, I have a buddy there that bought some and he said it was like 22 bucks a gallon. <laughs> I like where which I'm is at. funny. Right. It's funny because like you're doing less to the milk. It requires less work, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. Oh, man. <laughs> Um, so another kind of question I had that was more related to just two hundreds in general is, um, how have you seen their, I guess, like the culture around them change over the past, like handful of years? Uh, I feel like they're, they're having a moment now they're becoming more and more popular. Um, have you seen that firsthand? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's the biggest thing is they're becoming more popular. Um, you know, I did my first 200 in 2017, And like, I signed up for the triple crown in the midst of it. Like I originally just planned on doing Bigfoot. I finished Bigfoot. I signed up for the triple crown, like three days later. Now there's no way you'd be able to do that. Like there's wait lists, there's lotteries. Um, you know, she, Candace Burt, she opened up the 2024 triple crown registration and she did a post a few days ago saying there's like a handful of spots left. So like, it's obvious that more and more people are doing it and I'd say more people doing it's a big one, but then also just like, you know, Jamil and Aravipa, like with the whole live stream thing, <laughs> like I remember. So cool. Yeah. And like, I remember when they announced that in 2020, my first thought was like, I'm a trail runner. And I think that sounds super boring. <laughs> like who's going to want to yeah. watch three plus days of people like just running through the mountains. But like, he's obviously proved like, you know, the views go up each year and they, live stream more each year. Like, you know, last year they cut it off till 9 PM. And then I don't even know if they live stream, like in the middle, like certain people who are finishing in the middle, but like this year they essentially live streamed every single day. I believe when I finished on Thursday that morning, they came back on at 9 AM and they live streamed throughout the night, like all the way to the finish. So more views, more live streaming, like, you know, I I believe they're, doing really a uh, really good job at like hyping up the distance and wanting more people to get into the distance. Yeah, I mean, they also have really solid commentary from entertaining people that to pair with the live stream and then uh, I saw that some of the aid stations this year were pretty festive. I know like Satisfy had one and I th- I know like Speedland sponsored the race too. Yeah. Uh, was there any parties that you uh you passed by? Um, I would say the, what did you call it again? Like the satisfy running. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a total party and like the whole, um, uh, what do they call it? Michael Versteeg's drink. Oh, the, uh, oh man, what's it called? It's like flat soda, right? Floda, Floda. Floda. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like just like coolers all over the place of Floda like freaking a commercial for Florida that like, like, yeah. So the satisfy running aid station was awesome. I I've noticed that like Jerome's getting more and more kind of like a party, um, especially because the first year, like they were very um, like, there was a rule that you couldn't take any pictures inside Jerome. 
I couldn't remember the reasoning behind that, but that was like one request from the city to get permits approved. And then like after we went through there, they found out that essentially they didn't even know that that we went through there. Like we were so quiet and and, in their words, awesome. And so like that kind of like made them more open to us and like, they're like, yeah, you should send them around the mine and do this, do that. And so like Jerome's becoming more of a really cool, like section of the course. Um, Sedona's rad. Like that's the cool thing about this race. Like, you know, I love running through the trails. I love being hundred percent in the mountains, but like, you know, almost every single aid station, you go through this like really cool town. Like you got Prescott and whiskey row, you got Jerome, you got Sedona, you got Flagstaff. So like the city vibes are, are pretty cool. I was told by someone that grew up in Prescott not to call it Prescott. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, like, it's Prescott. Yeah. I have a friend that's from there and he kept saying Prescott. So that's why I say it that way. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think you, you speak to one of the advantages of having like a point to point course, right? Like you got to go through so many different uh, landscapes and, and towns and stuff like that. It seems really cool. Uh, gear wise, what shoes did you wear? Um, I started out in the Solomon Sench. I'm sponsored by Solomon. So, you know, all these are Solomons, but the Centride 5, the Ultra Glide 2, the Pulsar Trail, and then the new Glide Max TR. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I've heard really good things about, uh, the Glide Max TR kind of (laughs) most maximal shoe Solomon's made. Yeah. And they don't have their typical, um, quick lace system. So like, honestly, like, you know, I've had people see me in that shoe and they're like, I thought you were a Solomon athlete. What are you doing in Hoka? Like, it looks, oh, it looks like a big Hoka, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'll try and get a review of, of that up on the website in the near future. Um, Mike, before I let you go, what do you have coming up this year? Uh, so I'm on the wait list for Western States. Normally, I wouldn't have any hopes about getting in, but the past two years, they've exhausted the wait list. Um, I started out at 69 and I think last I checked I'm 37. So it's definitely progressing. And I've heard the majority of the movement happens like end of this month, early next month. So I'm kind of counting on it. <laughs> um, yeah. And then Poros, one of my sponsors, they actually reached out last week and asked me if I would do Leadville. They had an entry. And so I've never done Leadville. So I, I ended up signing up for Leadville uh, last week. And then, um, Three weeks after that, I'm doing that new 200 up in Canada, the Divide 200. Awesome. Well, a couple iconic 100 milers, it sounds like. Um, How are you training for Western States without knowing that you'll actually race? Kind of just going as if? Yeah. I mean, that's the nice thing about just finishing Cocodona is I'm still recovering. So, I'm just kind of getting out and going for an hour a day. But um, roughly, like right now, I'm going to start utilizing a sauna every single day. and I mean, if I don't get into Western states, there's no negative effects to just going using the sauna every day. <laughs> yeah. Do you do the the uh, cold exposure too? Nope. I, I, I believe in pushing yourself and getting uncomfortable, but I don't believe you need to be uncomfortable in every aspect in life. And I enjoy my warm showers and I hate cold therapy. So I just, I don't do it. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for for chatting with me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Mike for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself. Keep moving forward. And we'll talk to you again next week.